0: Our scripture reading for today comes from Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on their way to the Jordan, as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorite who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell the business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of the house into the street, his blood shall be on his own hand, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to our oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land unto our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away before us. So last week we began our study of Joshua, and uh, specifically what we're focusing on is the issues the book of Joshua raises about identity. Just like the Israelites, we are a people with a specific set of beliefs and allegiances uh, that center on Christ, and they mark us as different, as distinct. At the same time, uh, we are called to be a people who consider others more important to ourselves, who have a duty to serve our neighbor, and are even called to love our enemies. Jesus refuses to let us choose between our distinct identity and our duty to others. According to Jesus, the greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbors. The two cannot be divided. As we look at Joshua, we will also find that it is a story of people struggling to live out their ideals in a very different but equally morally complex world. Now, last week we were introduced to some of the major themes of Joshua, and the two big ones that I highlighted were obedience to God and unity. Uh, Throughout chapter 1, you will remember that the Hebrew word for all or every, which is kol, was uh, repeated uh, many, many times. The emphasis was on Israel working together as a united people. They were whole. They were not fragmented. There was an emphasis on integrity. In addition, God wants Israel to understand that their success is assured only insofar as they are obedient to God. Now, what we're going to find is that both of these ideas of obedience and unity are going to be challenged in chapter 2. Now, that seems strange, but if you'll remember, last week I said that we need to think of Joshua like the song uh, by Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA. The chorus sounds like a rock anthem celebrating patriotism, but the verses challenge these ideas by pointing out the despair and alienation of many Americans. Uh, The verses subvert the course. And what we will see is that the point of chapter 2 is to subvert the ideas of unity and what it looks like to be obedient to God. So we need to understand that Joshua is no simple work. It's actually quite complex. Now, chapter 2 is going to be extremely important to the message of Joshua. That's one of the reasons that uh, I didn't want to uh, include any other passages. I wanted to specifically focus on this. Uh, And we know that it's really important because it's obvious from the way the text is written that it was purposely inserted between chapter 1 and 3. Like many of the books of the Old Testament, it took some time for Joshua to reach its final form. And more than likely, the basic storyline existed as some kind of oral uh, history, uh, and before it was finally written down and given it sh- its shape. But at some point, chapter two was inserted because we can tell that there's like an interruption between chapter one and three. Chapters one and three flow together, and chapter two is clearly uh, an aberration. So, uh, why did this happen? Well, I think it's because whoever uh, wrote Joshua wants to make a point about identity and borders and the Torah. So let's look at this chapter and see why the author took such pains to include it and why uh, the author interrupted, uh, interrupted the, the flow of the story. And one of the things I think you're going to find is, as we talk about this, is that chapter 2 is a work of literary genius. I'm excited to work through it because it's so good. Ever since I thought about going to Joshua, this is the story I wanted to tell. In fact, if you don't come away thinking this is one of the best stories of the Bible and possibly one of the best stories of all time, then I have failed in this sermon. That's how good this story is. So let's look at this. Joshua 2 begins with Joshua ordering two spies to be sent out from Shittim, to report on the city of Jericho. Now, already in verse 1, in this first clause, uh, we have a lot of historical baggage. uh, We're being set up. Back in Numbers 13, 12 spies were sent out from Canaan. And after 40 days, the spies reported that the land was awesome. It flowed with milk and honey. It had this huge grapes But the spies also reported that the people who lived there were giants, and their cities were huge and fortified. Uh, Here's a quote from uh, Numbers 13. The land through which we we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height, and we seemed ourselves grasshoppers to them. The people, after hearing this report of the spies, decide that they would rather overthrow Moses and go back to Egypt than to fight these Canaanites. Because remember, Egypt has the leaks. Now, two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, argue that the Lord has assured them victory, so they should go forth. God is so upset by this lack of faith among his people that he decides that all the Israelites will remain in the wilderness Another 40 years. And only Joshua and Caleb will be able to enter into Canaan. So spying was a big fail in the past. In addition, notice where the spies are sent out from. Uh, they're sent out from Shatim. And besides it being an unfortunately named city, I mean, we could think of uh, Shatim could make like maybe like an ancient version of, uh, you know, comedy starring Eugene Levy or something in it. Uh, However, it's important from a historical standpoint because that it so happens that uh, in Numbers 25, there's a story about Shatim in which Israelite men uh, started hanging out with Moabite women that were at Shatim, and pretty soon everyone's worshiping Baal. So, Shatim is uh, meant to recall the dangers represented by the seduction of foreign women. For lemon leads to idolatry. Now, if you read verse 1, Joshua orders the spies to go and then view the land. Okay, so that's the command. And what do they do? They go, and they don't view the land. They enter the house of a prostitute. Now, the text is ambiguous here. But there's enough innuendo in in the language to suggest that what's going on is exactly what you think would be happening when two young soldiers go to a foreign place by themselves. Verse 1 introduces Rahab as a woman, a prostitute, whose name was Rahab. The name Rahab itself is actually innuendo as well. It means open. So Rahab is pretty much ticking all the boxes of every category that was foreign and dangerous to an Israelite. A woman, a Canaanite, and she's sexually immoral. And also remember the story begins in Shittim. And we've already seen how bad spying can screw everything up. The story is set up, in other words, to anticipate failure. Already in verse 1, we have seen a total threat To the virtues of unity and obedience that were set up in chapter one, which is why we should be totally shocked at what happens in the rest of the story. Okay, so understand that, you know, we read this story and we kind of just like tick along and uh, think, oh, this is kind of cool. But think about how out of left field this story would have been for someone who uh, was studying the Torah and knew this background. What happens is totally contrary uh, to the setup. So while we begin uh, to think about the spies and their relationship with Rahab, uh, so, so, you know, we're, we're set up to already begin to think about the spies and Rahab as the crisis of this chapter, Okay. Uh, But suddenly, a new problem emerges. The king of Jericho has heard about the spies and he began searching for them. However, rather than showing loyalty to the king of Jericho as a good Jerichoite, Rahab decides instead to protect these foreign spies. She surely does not deny that she knows the spies, but she does cunningly mislead the king by claiming the men have fled into the night and suggesting the king send his soldiers to pursue them. Rahab then hides the men. And all of this is done on her own initiative. Notice the spies say nothing, Rahab just does. Now, the craziest part of this story. There's a lot of crazy parts of the story, and we're going to go into it because you need to understand how insane everything is here, is that what she tells the, is what she tells the spies as she is hiding them. Look at verse nine, okay, "I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now the first thing I want you to notice in Rahab's speech here, is that she uses the word Lord. So if you look in your Bible, the word Lord is going to be in small caps there. And what that tells you is that that is a translation from the Hebrew Yahweh. Okay, so Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God. It's the name that's used by God's people. And typically, a foreigner would be expected to use the more generic term El, which is just translated as God. But that's not what Rahab does there. So it's significant that what we have is Rahab using Yahweh. This isn't just any God. This isn't just any powerful being, deity, which, you know, was real common in the ancient worlds. There were were gods everywhere. This was specifically Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Now, second, what she does in her speech is actually quote from Exodus 15. Which uh, some of you, if you're a Bible nerd, you know Exodus 15 is the song of Moses. Uh, that was uh, took place right after uh, they crossed. The Israelites crossed uh, the Red Sea. Okay, it's probably one of the most ancient parts of the old of the Old Testament. We think that that it's probably uh, one of the first things that was written. Uh, and so Rahab ends up uh, confessing by stating. For the Lord your God, he is the God of the heavens above and on earth beneath. And that's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 4. So we have Rahab not only using the term Yahweh, but quoting from the Torah, not just from one book, but from two, Exodus 15, the Song of Moses, and Deuteronomy 4. It's remarkable that this speech is coming from the mouth of a foreign unclean Canaanite prostitute woman. And notice that so far, she's the only one who's done anything. Throughout this whole story, she is going to be the active one. The Israelite spies are passive. Notice the Israelite spies aren't quoting from Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 6. We don't even know the names of the spies. The spies have not said anything at this point, And they certainly aren't confessing their faith in Yahweh. Basically, already in nine verses of this story, the scoreboard is reading Rahab 8 and Hebrew spies 0. Uh, all of this is intentional by the author of the text. The author's trying to beat you over the head with it. Because what the text wants you to see is that Rahab is the hero of this story. Now, here's another thing. I think it's important to, to make this point. Something you may not know. Rahab is probably not a prostitute because she was thinking one day, you know what would be a good career path? Prostitution. More than likely, what's happened is she has been forced into this profession because of family death. In other words, she is a victim of an oppressive economic system. Now, getting back to the story, Rahab is far from done. Not only does she cleverly deceive the king's men, but she cunningly, Uh, uh, secures a pact from the spies to save not only herself, but her whole family. This agreement is carefully designed as an oath ratified before Yahweh. It includes a history of Rahab's deeds on behalf of the spies. It includes a series of stipulations, and it even requires a sign in the form of a scarlet thread. In verse 12, uh, she says, Rahab says that she has dealt kindly with the spies. Now here's another thing. That word kindly there, that is a that is the translation of the Hebrew word Hesed. Alright? So uh as anyone who has been to Resurrection Church knows, Hesed is a massively important word in the Old Testament. It's uh it it's not really translated, um into one concept, but basically it describes a fierce loyalty in the context of a covenant. It's often used to describe how God's loving, and, of God's loving and righteous behavior with his own people. And here, Rahab is claiming the words for herself. So when the spies take the oath in Yahweh's name, in verse 14, they have not simply made a deal. What the language and structure of the text wants us to understand is that this agreement, right? This agreement that has a divinely sanctioned promise, stipulations, a recounting of the history, and, uh, and a sign. Okay, what do all those things mean? That's a covenant. That is a covenant. Covenant. And if you've heard me talk about covenants for more than five minutes, you know they're super important in the ancient world. What we're to understand here is that Rahab has not made like a a clever deal. She has made a covenant. Now, why is that important? Because there's something very important that you need to know. Remember in chapter one, there is a big focus on obedience to the law. And much of the language of chapter 1, and really not just chapter 1, but throughout the book of Joshua is totally dependent on the book of Deuteronomy, okay? In fact, so influential is Deuteronomy on the theology of uh, Joshua, and not only Joshua, but the books of Samuel and Kings, that Joshua, Samuel, and Kings are referred to as the Deuteronomistic history. Now, let me read you a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you in the land that you are entering to take possession of, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them to you and you defeat them, then you should devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters from your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So this is a pretty clear passage in Deuteronomy. It's exactly the type of rule Joshua is warned not to turn from the right hand or left from in chapter one. All the Canaanites are to be devoted to complete destruction and no covenants were to be made for them. But what have the spies done in chapter two? They have made a covenant. And the content of that covenant means that some of the Canaanites will not be devoted to complete destruction. Now, this isn't just like an error that like we're putting together. The text actually knows this. Because notice how sheepish the response of the spies is after they make this covenant. We will be guiltless with respect to the oath of yours that you have made, made us swear. Right? Did you pick that up? Made us swear, guiltless. The spies here are trying to complain or are trying to claim that they should be absolved of this transgression because they made it under duress. They then exact a concession from Rahab that she not tell anyone of the deal. They want to keep this secret. And so what chapter 2 is doing is purposely confronting us with a moral dilemma. Uh, do, Do we follow Deuteronomy 7 or do we not? And here's another crazy detail. Like I said, there's a ton of really cool details here that you need to pick up. When the spies return to Joshua, what do the spies say? Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away from us. What Joshua doesn't know, but what we know, is that the spies are actually repeating Rahab's words. Okay? They are quoting Rahab here. Forty years earlier, 12 spies had been sent out into Canaan and all but Joshua and one other spy had gotten the report correct. Now two spies return. But their report of trusting the divine promise is not their own, but Rahab, who's a woman, a Canaanite, and a prostitute. So the point that is being emphasized in chapter 2 is that Rahab is totally and completely being presented as the hero of the story here. And you can imagine how subversive uh, this would have been to the people that are listening to this text. Rahab is challenging everything that we might think as Israelites we know about Canaanites. She is a way better example of Israelite faith than the actual Israelite spies. The spies aren't even given names in this story. Their actions are completely passive. They rarely speak, and when they do, most of their words are in response to Rahab or even quoting Rahab. They certainly aren't going around quoting Exodus and Deuteronomy like she does. The story doesn't quite pass like the Bechdel test or something, but I think we can argue that it's pretty much a slam dunk for Rahab as the virtuous hero and the Israelite spies as weak and worthless. Now, I'm going to blow your mind even further here because uh, the next thing I want you to do, if you have your Bible handy, okay? If you don't, don't worry about it. It's not 100% necessary. But let's turn... To Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Yes, that Proverbs 31. Uh, The Proverbs 31 that talks about the ideal biblical woman. The Proverbs 31 handbag thing. Okay. So let's look at verse 13. She seeks wool and what? Flax and works with willing hands. All right. Now go down to verse 21. She is not afraid of the snow for her household. All her household are clothed in scarlet. Now if you'll remember, Rahab hides the spies in flax and that she happens to have a scarlet cord that the Israelites use as a sign. Now these random details about flax and scarlet are Purposely included in the text. They don't need to be there. The reason that they're included there is that the text wants us to see Rahab as the Proverbs 31 woman. Again, we're seeing Rahab as a virtuous woman outsider. And while that seems jarring, let's think about it. Is it really, should it really come as a surprise that it's included? We have seen examples before of this subversion. Remember the story of Hagar, the Egyptian. She's a slave and a concubine. And she's contrasted with uh, Abraham, the wealthy Hebrew patriarch. Hagar and her son Ishmael are turned out in the wilderness by Abraham's vengeful wife. Yet God cares for Hagar. He gives her a blessing that closely matches the one that he gives to Abraham. And therefore, Hagar secures a future for her son Ishmael. Hagar speaks with God. And she's the first person in the Bible who honors God by naming him. Uh, Later in Genesis, we have the story of Tamar, who is a Canaanite woman who poses as a prostitute to secure her family's future from her husband, Judah. Judah declares at the end of the story that Tamar is more righteous than himself. Then, of course, we have the story of Ruth, in which another despised ethnicity, a Moabite, and also a poor refugee woman, secures her future from the Israelite, Boaz. All three of these women and Rahab, Uh, are included in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. Of course, it's in Matthew that Jesus will heal the daughter of a Canaanite woman who cunningly extracts from Jesus a promise of healing. We also find Jesus constantly including marginalized women into his ministry and kingdom despite the loud protests of those who believe that they are firmly part of the covenant while women such as Jesus' associates should be excluded. Rahab has a name. She is a fully fleshed out character. She acts. She's clever. And she demonstrates not only intelligence, but devotion to the true God. And what Joshua is doing here is forcing us to deal with this, even though it may not fit our preconceived idea of what a Canaanite should be. Who are us and who are them is strongly challenged at every turn in this story. The story is a powerful denunciation of Canaanite prejudice, and it's making its meaning plain. Notice, think about this too. In Joshua, she is the very first Canaanite the Israelites encounter in the book. And she is everything the spies are not. She's unclean, she's a woman, she's a prostitute. And yet we discover she is wholly devoted to Yahweh in an amazing way. She has presented everything that an ideal an Israelite should strive for. An ideal Israelite should strive for. Clever, hospitable, active, devoted to Yahweh. She's the Proverbs 31 woman. And the point is that in Joshua, stereotypes are shattered. Boundaries are broken. And the message of Joshua is that inclusion and not exclusion and destruction are the ultimate goal. It's the only reason you would include this story. Because what the book wants us to know right at the start in chapter 2 with the first encounter of a Canaanite is there is a wider vision of the people of God. And that vision transcends ethnicity and gender. Notice that the sign for the Israelites It's a scarlet cord hanging from the window of Rahab's house. Now, think about this. Where might we have seen something similar? A red sign over an opening in a house that signifies salvation from destruction? We are meant here to recall the Passover. And Rahab's sign is meant to signal to the listener that she and her family have participated in Israel's great story of salvation. Rahab has fully been incorporated into Israel, and not by blood or soil, but by her actions and faith in Yahweh. Now, the rest of the story is that Rahab will go on to marry an Israelite which, of course, completes her list of things forbidden in Deuteronomy 7. Anybody know what her son's name is? It's Boaz. The same Boaz who marries Ruth and whose grandson is King David. And everyone hearing this book would know this. What a remarkable story and how unprecedented its inclusion must have been. It would have been unprecedented in the ancient world. It's kind of unprecedented now. It it would have been crazily uncomfortable for so many people who believe that the only good Canaanite was a dead Canaanite. Here's something else. (laughs) I mean, the details are just crazy in this story. The word for cord here is also uh, almost exactly the same as the word for hope in Hebrew. Joshua wants us to see that there is hope for the Canaanites. And that if there is hope for the Canaanites, then there must be hope for anyone. We all can participate in the great story of God's salvation. Boundaries have been broken, stereotypes shattered, prejudice can no longer be held uh, uh, because uh, because there is no us or them. Exclusion occurs because it's easier to rid ourselves of... Uh, it's easier... Um, to, to rid ourselves of that which is different than to try to incorporate it. We are uncomfortable of anything that messes with our boundaries, our stories, that disturbs our identities, that challenge our ideas of how the world should be. And so we exclude it. But what the story of Rahab does is it explodes this idea because it forces us to accept that the boundaries, identities, and symbols do not tell the whole story. Rahab is a hero we cannot dismiss. The Israelites could not dismiss her. They must accept her. And if we must accept Rahab, the ultimate anti-Israelite, a Canaanite, a woman and a prostitute, that means that we must move away from our own natural inclination for purity and simplicity and instead seek to embrace the different, the other, the excluded. And that's the beauty of Christ. Because what Christ does is created a new humanity that transcends our realities. It is part of what it means to live in the hope of resurrection. Because in the hope of resurrection and a new uh, humanity, we realize that the divisions that separate us are, are not products of a good creation, but an aberration that has been defeated and overcome at the cross. Living in light of that hope then means embracing, including, seeking justice and righteousness for all those who have been excluded. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before God. That is what is required of us, his people.